Welcome to The Secret Life of Dietitians. I'm Laura Poland. And I'm Amy Keller. I think if there's a buzzword around nutrition right now, it's the term inflammation. I hear a lot about it in literature, um, just even in articles that we read. And I, I, I know enough, a little bit about inflammation to be able to sort of talk about it, but I'm no expert. And so I thought we would consult an expert today, another expert dietitian here on, on The Secret Life of Dietitians. Welcome back, everyone. So glad to be back. Yeah, we've talked about inflammation on the show a little bit here and there, kind of did a little dabbling into it. So I'm really excited to have my friend Lisa Andrews on the show today. Lisa is the owner of Sound Bites Nutrition, which she launched in 2008. She shares her nutrition knowledge through counseling, cooking demos, teaching, and freelance writing. Lisa also creates food pun shirts, I have many, (laughs) and swag where part of the proceeds go to those suffering from food insecurity. She has an extensive experience in clinical and community nutrition, and she is the author of The Healing Gout Cookbook. Lisa is the co-chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee for the Ohio Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and she is the immediate past president. She has served on the Ohio Board and Greater Cincinnati Dietetic Association as the chair of professional issues and media chair. And in 2002, Lisa won the Ohio Recognized Young Dietitian of the Year Award, and in 2017, received the Ohio Recognized Dietitian of the Year Award, which is big kudos, so uh, very cool. You can find more information from her at her website, soundbitesnutrition.com, and we'll include that in the show notes. Welcome, Lisa. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. Excited to have you here. So. Thanks. It was in the intro. I think if there has to be a buzzword in nutrition right now, it's inflammation. And maybe when some people think of inflammation, they think of like, you know, what happened to me on Sunday? I got stung by something <laughs> on a ride, a bike ride, and ended up with redness and swelling. And that's one form of inflammation if we think about it. But what is like dietary inflammation? What would be the definition of inflammation as it goes with nutrition? Yeah, so what you experienced on Sunday and what a lot of people might experience when they have something acutely happen to them. So, you know, you get stung by a bee, you fall off your bike, you're injured. So acute inflammation can occur when you're injured. So it's just a response to tissue industry in injury. So you might have, you know, heat, swelling, redness, um, disturbed function in that area. Um, even if you have the cold or a flu and your temperature goes up, your body's going to respond to that form of inflammation too. So when it comes to looking at diet and disease from what we would consider more of a chronic inflammatory state, um, so chronic inflammation is not necessarily visible to the eye. Now Now it might be, you know, lack of a better example, I have rheumatoid arthritis and typically in the morning my hands are kind of swollen and so you can see that visibly, mm-hmm. but you can't really see what's going on on the inside. So probably on the inside is some additional swelling and tissue damage that's that's occurring 
because of this inflammatory state. So like when cells are in distress or when they're experiencing inflammation, they're going to release chemicals that basically interact with the immune system and tell the immune system to start flooding the body with white blood cells in order to eat up bacteria and viruses and that sort of thing. Excuse me. Kind of our defenders, Um, the white blood cells, our defense. Exactly. Yeah. Neutrophils, white blood cells, cytokines. So we, we need inflammation in order to activate the immune system in order for protection. The problem with chronic inflammation, which can occur from different factors, it can be related to a disease like cancer or rheumatoid arthritis or even something like Lyme disease. Um, Mm -hmm. So it could be something environmental. When the cells are attacked on a long-term basis, that's when you start to see cellular damage to arteries and intestines and those sorts of things. From a dietary standpoint, you know, it can vary from person to person depending on their genetics, their environment. I mean, aging itself increases our risk for inflammation or, you know, increases chronic inflammation just because we're exposed to more toxins and pollutions and smoking and poor diet and lack of exercise and poor sleep. So it's very multifactorial. Okay. Are there markers that like physicians could look for like in the lab work? I mean, I see lots of lab work every day, all day long. It's what I look at all day long and patients. But what am I looking for in terms of, besides white blood cells, in terms of what I might be looking for, like on a lab report that might indicate chronic inflammation? Yeah, so the the issue with taking labs is that they vary from day to day and time to time during the day. So, for example, if somebody came in with a heart attack, their C-reactive protein would probably be very elevated at that moment. But then once their body is, you know, has responded to the stress and the stress is reduced, that C-reactive protein is probably going to go down. So just checking the lab by itself, just sort of willy-nilly without sort of an an accompanying diagnosis like MS or heart disease or rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, it's not really very useful to just check that type of marker of of inflammation. So it's more like you you want to get a, a broader picture of what was happening. I remember when I worked in the ICU, the doctors would follow C-reactive protein to see if the patient's stress level or inflammation was starting to decline, and then that would, you know, kind of guide them as to which medications were going to be most appropriate, whether they were antibiotics or steroids or, you know, whatever, whatever it was in that situation. Really, in terms of inflammation and showing what's going on in the body, you're looking at, in in terms of like chronic inflammation, you're looking for what are your levels on a routine basis, so something you would have run on a regular time basis to kind of see where it's at? So the thing with checking those labs just without any any sort of symptoms or any real reason to check them. They're not going to really tell you much. Okay, because they kind of go away, I guess, what I'm trying to understand. So they kind of, like with your heart attack, I get that. Like, And I think I can understand that one because, so you have a heart attack, and when it happens, your body releases the the C C proteins. Yeah, Yeah, C-reactive proteins. We used to call it PrEP. 
CRP basically. So. Right. See, I don't, um, I don't deal record. with these labs all the time like you guys. So, sure. okay. So yeah. that's released. But again, once the body's defenses start kicking in, it's going to reduce that. So that's not going to be right. present anymore. Right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So the other thing that increases inflammation is just overweight and obesity. So people used to think that excessive body weight or excessive fat tissue was just sort of dormant and it really didn't do anything. So, but it's actually very metabolic. So um, when people carry extra weight, you know, it increases their risk for it, it reduces their insulin sensitivity. So they're higher risk for diabetes, which um, is considered an inflammatory condition. The other thing is that the body will send out more pro-inflammatory chemicals like cytokines and macrophages that, that are released into the bloodstream that can sort of do some damage to the gut lining, which we know, you know, about 60% of our immune function is, is living in that gut tissue. So are there, you know, you had mentioned the swelling that you experience with your RA, you know, and certainly there are other conditions that cause joint swelling and pain and those types of things. What, you know, if you're talking about physical findings that I might be looking for, besides overweight and obesity, what other physical findings might indicate that there's chronic inflammation below the surface? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know if I can answer that with a particular lab value that you would necessarily see. But if somebody, you know, had like an underlying genetic condition, whether it was, um, you know, cancer or, or diabetes or something, it's not that you would assume they have inflammation, but those conditions in and of themselves are inflammatory. Right. So it's it's interesting when people lose weight, you know, they, they feel better. And part of it is because they don't have that extra weight on their joints and their, you know, their hips and their knees and their elbows and everywhere else. But the other thing is that their systemic inflammation is reduced. And so I, you know, when I counsel people on weight loss, you know, I encourage them, even if it's a small amount of weight loss, it may improve how they feel, you know, whether they can breathe a little bit better or their joints don't hurt as much. It doesn't have to be a really dramatic weight loss to change, you know, how much inflammation they're experiencing in their body. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, you talked a little bit about the link between, you know, um, inflammation and obesity and overweight. I think, I feel like this research is still just so emergent. I feel like we're just seeing, just starting to kind of tip the iceberg on all of the, the kind of consequences um, of that inflammation in terms of, like you said, with diabetes and heart disease. Have you seen research on maybe, for example, the link between obesity and cancer? We, we know that people who are obese are more at risk for cancer, but, but maybe why? Is inflammation part of that? I think inflammation is part of that, but I also think the increase in estrogen levels um, also increases the risk for cancer in, in people that are overweight or obese. The other thing is traditional, and I hate this Western, you know, we're, we're over here in the West, you know, it's our Western diet, but sugar, all the stuff that tastes good, all the stuff that we're supposed to be reducing to reduce our risk for heart disease and diabetes, all of those are more pro-inflammatory. So refined 
sugar, white bread, donuts, cake, pie, cookies, candy, you know, all of those things are, are also pro-inflammatory. And so those can sort of kick off that chemical reaction that increases inflammation in the body as well. So there is definitely a lot of research on the Mediterranean diet in reducing inflammation because it is more plant-based. Reducing red meat definitely would help. Reducing full-fat dairy, which is interesting because a lot of people will say, oh, I cut out dairy from my diet and I felt better. And, you know, it's hard to tell if that is anecdotal or if that's or if that's real because there really isn't there really hasn't been very solid evidence to support cutting it out as mm -hmm. beneficial unless it's maybe cutting out a lot of full fat cheese where that saturated fat might have made a difference. Right. Mm -hmm. And isn't that funny because you know, full fat dairy is back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Funny that we're talking about that from an inflammatory standpoint. And then if you look at, you know, what weight loss, what weight loss research or the nurse's health study or whatever, isn't that interesting? Because it seems like full fat dairy was making a comeback. Um, yeah. And yeah. Yogurt commercials now like advertising that it's full fat. Like, and that's probably because of keto. That's yeah. when um, I see that, I immediately think that's probably related to the ketogenic diet where, you know, fat is cool and carbs are not, you know. <laughs> so the interesting thing though is the rate of colon cancer is higher in younger adults. Mm -hmm. So I do wonder if, you know, it is that lack of fiber <clears throat> which helps to reduce inflammation because it's keeping all that gut bacteria alive. Mm -hmm. And then there's just this increase in fat intake, which is not great for our guts in so many ways. I mean, not yeah. just your beer belly gut, but your, you know, your, your, your colon and your intestines where all that healthy bacteria lives yeah. and bad bacteria. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is diet does play a role and can help with increasing and decreasing inflammation in the body. Yes. Inflammation that's occurring. And so some of the foods that you said, I think maybe it might be good to just kind of reiterate the foods in general, you know, that increase inflammation versus the ones that help decrease. And maybe sure. Why. So, yeah, so your pro-inflammatory foods are, you know, your full-fat cheese, um, higher-fat cuts of red meat, fried foods, trans fat, those sorts of things, um, processed fats, um, and then your... Some of your more refined oils may or may not be pro-inflammatory because the interesting thing, like corn oil is a refined oil, uh, which means that actually improves the smoke point. So it, it, you know, improves the shelf life and everything. And it actually helps to lower your LDL cholesterol. So there are, there's the benefit to it. So I can't say across the board, every refined oil is terrible for you. Other things that are considered pro-inflammatory, sugar, um, so soda for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if they've made the connection necessarily with high fructose corn syrup or just, just refined sugar. sort of mm -hmm. white table sugar, granular sugar, white flour, those sorts of things that are more refined tend to be more pro-inflammatory. And then your, your anti-inflammatory anti foods, berries, kale, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, all those great green leafy vegetables that we were always encouraging people to eat more of. Mm -hmm. um, things that are high in vitamin C 
because they're antioxidants. Those are going to help to protect the cells. Avocado, because of the type of fat that's in there, olive oil, those are also healthy. In fact, um, this is a study I've learned about, I think through, was probably through like avocados in Mexico or something, <laughs> where if you included a slice of avocado on your burger, it actually showed reduced inflammation in the bloodstream when they're looking for markers of inflammation after you eat a burger without an avocado when you had a burger with an avocado it actually helped to reduce the inflammation so even just you know adding more plants to your food or your your meals right is beneficial yeah and if you don't have avocado maybe put a smear of guacamole you know it's probably going to have the same effect yeah so that's what i've always said to people just Make sure that you're including those fruits and vegetables with your meal and whole grains and right. then everything else in moderation. I think right. that can go a long way with that. So, well, I, I yeah. think if there's anything that maybe troubles me about this inflammation topic is the variety of popular diets that people will go on. I mean, Google inflammation, holy moly. Oh, <laughs> yeah inflammatory diet, you will hear everything and your brother about what you should avoid. I have a really, I'm troubled by it because, you know, if you talk about the Mediterranean diet and focus on whole grains, but if you look up whole grains are so supposedly inflammatory for some people, you know, Mm. so the question is, where can people go for reliable information on inflammatory diet? So, I mean, honestly, what I look at when I'm looking for studies is PubMed. I mean, that, that's where you're going to have at least some peer-reviewed mm-hmm. studies. And I also look at how big the studies are and, and if there's a meta-analysis or system, you know, a systematic review of something or if it's just like eight people in you know, <laughs> right. some tiny town that nobody's <laughs> ever heard of. And the other thing to consider is that we're, we're all individuals. So, you know, people have different food sensitivities Different things we, cause were, inflammation. Yeah, we yeah. were just scratching the surface on. So it's interesting about like, oh, you know, that that book that came out eons ago, that Eat Right for Your Blood Type. Yes. You know, there was, there was no basis at all for that diet. I mean, there's nothing on it at all. Right. And so now, you know, I think the science is just starting to emerge about, you know, the nutrigenomics. Nutri- I mean, how are we going to figure out what what's good for to me, until we kind of get to that place, I, you know, I encourage people to keep a food diary so you can pinpoint, you know, I ate this and it gave me hives or I ate this and it made my acne worse or all those sorts of things. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the nutrigenomics? You threw that out there and I don't think we've talked about that very much at all (laughs) with anybody. Oh, so, so I might have to look it up now. No, so nutrigenomics is, is kind of the study of, nutrition and, and genetics. So how, how our nutrition plays into our genetic makeup and profile. There's, there's a, a particular institute here in Cincinnati called the Alliance for, I think it's the Alliance for Integrative Medicine. And I think they're just starting to do like some genetic testing to sort of tell, you know, what your genetic background is. But when you, when you think about it, we're already kind of doing that in some sense. I mean, when I talk to a person and I counsel them on whatever diet they want to do or whatever their health goals are, I immediately ask about their family history because Mm -hmm. if they're at risk for 
colon cancer, I'm going to really push the fiber. If they're at risk for prostate cancer, I'm probably going to back off on the dairy products and calcium. So I'm already kind of doing that in a sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're using that person's family history and family medical history to kind of steer what they can eat. But then we also want to consider their culture and their preferences and what they can Mm -hmm. afford and what they like to eat, which is huge or they're not going to, they're not going to stick with it. That's, that's how, that's always my yeah. complaint about these wacky whole 30. I'm like, well, what do you do after the 30 days? And what happens? You know, yeah. like, okay, you, you deprived yourself for a whole month. You were hateful <laughs> without your coffee and whatever it was. And then now what do you do? You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. No, I like how you said that, that science is so young and so emerging we don't know enough about it we don't know enough science behind it of course and then but we are finding some really cool interesting things about genetics and things that it can do for us but the bottom line is how are you feeling and what are you willing and able to do you know to your diet right so yeah right obviously the mediterranean diet probably is the most evidence-based form of an organic Is there anything that you know you would recommend? Let's say you have somebody who wants to get into Mediterranean, um, mm-hmm. but it seems overwhelming. It's such a big diet. I mean, I teach Mediterranean diet in classes, mm-hmm. and I, I go through it, and it all just sounds so lovely and <laughs> wonderful. But I also know it's it's kind of somewhat of a complicated diet for a lot of people to to get started. Do you have any sort of maybe three quick tips you give patients to get started with something like the Mediterranean diet? Yeah, so I mean, I would start, I would start with something small like Meatless Monday, you know, so, you know, like doing at least one meatless meal a week Mm -hmm. or reducing your meat consumption by at least one day. The other thing is I would try to have some sort of plant-based food with every meal, whether that's a banana at breakfast, some berries at lunch, a salad at dinner, some just add more vegetables wherever you can. And then if they're able to, you know, make any other kind of switches with using, you know, like lean ground turkey instead of beef in different recipes or adding lentils into their soup instead of chicken or whatever it is. I mean, just, just to kind of give them some, some tips to start with, or, or adding fish to their diet if they hadn't really eaten much fish, even starting with tuna fish. I mean, that's totally fine. They can always mix, mix like, tuna fish with avocado with lemon is actually really tasty. So there's different ways that they can start incorporating things into the diet and then just kind of slowly backing away from, you know, the more pro-inflammatory or more processed foods. Yeah. Awesome. Um, it makes me think of our previous guest who talked about produce on half the plate instead of fruits and vegetables, just produce on half yeah, the plate. Yeah. I love the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's achievable for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And like you said, just adding it to meals. I think both Laura and I, and I think you probably fall into this category as dietitians, I'm all about the add and right. really about the takeaway. Um, yeah. I feel like people are more likely to be able to stick to that. In terms of oils and olive oil and those types of things you know that probably is sort of the holy grail of of oils in terms of those choices you had mentioned corn oil is there any other things that you would recommend that patients use that would be 
not necessarily pro-inflammatory if they're looking for a cooking oil? So I would probably use um, extra virgin olive oil because it is higher in antioxidants. Mm -hmm. I would try to increase my omega-3 fatty acid intake. Mm -hmm. So if they can, you know, have a serving of salmon. Mm -hmm. If they don't like salmon, maybe they could try some ground flaxseed in their oatmeal or in their yogurt. Or, you know, another idea is, um, you know, chopped walnuts. You know, maybe incorporating that into a, into a trail mix or... Um, you know, adding it into, you know, like, again, some oatmeal or some yogurt or something like that to increase their omega-3 fatty acids. Mm -hmm. I mean, another option is fish oil, although, you know, it seems like the, the data on fish oil as far as, like, reducing risk for Alzheimer's or reducing depression and all those sorts of things, it, it may not be strong enough, but I sort of look at it like if it's not going to do any harm, Maybe, maybe they didn't study it long enough, or who knows what. I don't think it's a magic bullet, but if it's not going to do any harm and I'm not a big fish eater, mm -hmm. maybe that's an option to, to add into their diet. Mm -hmm. Another thing with inflammation, speaking of supplements, and, I, and I'm not a big pill person unless the person is deficient. I mean, to me, if it's not broke, you don't need to try to fix it. If your diet is pretty good and you're not deficient in something, I don't think taking a vitamin is necessarily going to heal you. But... There is decent data on vitamin D and things like joint pain and heart disease and breast cancer and all these very inflammatory conditions. So that is one level of it that I guess people can have checked just to see if it's low because replacing it may, you know, may improve or um, may reduce how much inflammation that they experience. Yeah, we we were talking about that recently, too, about the COVID and the relationship with that in terms of the coronavirus causing inflammation and wondering about the relationship with vitamin D and, and that type of thing. Yeah. So, yep. Okay. Yeah. You'd mentioned meatless Mondays and I love that idea. <laughs> I would love your thoughts on the beyond burgers and impossible burgers. Ooh. What do you think? <laughs> so it's a good question because they're, Loaded with lots of other things. Like if you compared, like if you compare just a lean burger with an impossible burger, the sodium content is clearly higher. And there's, you know, there's some added chemicals in there. I mean, obviously they're generally recognized as safe. In the um, impossible the burgers. Right. What's that? Just clarifying in the impossible burgers versus the lean. So just making right. sure right. that it's right. clear to our listeners that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... You may get more beneficial fats, the Impossible Burger. So it's it's kind of a toss up. I mean, I'm not. I, I can't say I'm really a fan of of either. Of, not that I don't enjoy a burger, but I think if I'm going to have a burger, I would just rather enjoy a regular burger mm -hmm. than all of a sudden start eating lots and lots of Impossible Burgers. I don't know. It just seems. I guess it seems unnatural to me. But you know, people are vegetarian and vegan, and they right. want some variety in their diet. So. Who am I to say? I mean, from a personal standpoint, I probably wouldn't go for it because I would just I would just eat the regular thing less often than to choose that. I just I, think there's a lot of chemicals in there that yeah may or may not be good. I personally agree with that too. I feel like like what you said about like if I'm gonna have a burger, I'm gonna have a burger, and I don't have a burger all the time. But right to your point too, like vegetarian, vegan, it does give you some good variety and a good option for something different. And, and so right. it's a good thing 
in certain cases too. It's just, I'm, yeah, I'm in the same boat with you where I would, I would eat the lean meat. So, (laughs) or the regular burger. What I think is interesting about those is that they're, they're meant to mimic burgers. So they actually kind of bleed when you cook them. Yeah. Which for a vegan or vegetarian is kind of like, oh, that's pretty Yeah, good. isn't that <laughs> what you're trying to do? Yeah. You know, but yeah. for somebody that's looking for a meat substitute and they, if they did eat a lot of meat, I think it's probably not a bad idea to throw it in here and there mm-hmm. just yeah. because it would be reducing the fat and the saturated fat content. The calories are actually pretty close, though. Yeah. Uh, when we compare them. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not, I mean, it kind of falls into that category if it's not a low calorie item. Right. Right. You know, I see that often, like, you know, even research on organic fruits and vegetables, people assume that they're lower in calories, and they're not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pretty much the same, but it's just, it's just different. You know, it's not, it's like Chevy or Ford, which one do you want? You know, it's. it's, Right. Yes. Which is what your preference is. And I think. Yeah. What are some other steps people can take to reduce inflammation, this chronic inflammation that, that could be harming them? Get enough sleep. Yeah, because yes. cortisol levels are increased, and that increases inflammation in the body. So make sure you're getting seven to eight hours of sleep. Um, I would, I mentioned cutting back on processed foods, but also processed meats, bacon, uh, bologna, all the bees, beef, bacon, bologna, burgers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're we're kind of getting away from grilling season now. But you know, I kind of I kind of cringe. When I hear how often, I mean, you know, we all we all grill out, but it's like if you're constantly having sausage and hot dogs on the grill and burgers on the grill, you know, I I I worry. I mean, <laughs> I just I think that definitely puts you at higher risk. It, I mean, we know that already. You know, mm-hmm. there's definitely a big connection between red meat and cancer and red meat and heart disease. So then those are again both inflammatory. Mm. Yeah. And anything else people could do to reduce inflammation? Exercise. So, again, that just helps to increase your T-cell function, so it boosts your immune system. Reduce your stress if you can. So meditate, maybe do some yoga, just try to, you know, breathe. We're all, we're all so tensed because there's, there's so much anxiety right now with not knowing yeah. what's going to happen. And we all just have to kind of give up control to some degree. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. I'll do what I have to do to protect my family and, you know, protect the people around me. But this, this is the not knowing and having anxiety is going to be the new normal for a lot of people, unfortunately. So we're going to have to learn to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, therapy, whatever works for you, you know? Yeah. 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 Stress is huge. And yeah, it's major. Yeah. yeah prayer is another one. I mean, mm-hmm. Religion, if people are religious or they find meditation or prayer, those are definitely helpful. In terms of, and I think we we talked about this a little bit already, where can people go for reliable information on, you know, for example, patients with MS or patients with RA? I mean, I feel like, again, Google may be not your friend um, in this situation um, because you can end up going down a rabbit hole. And restricting foods that you don't need to restrict. So, for example, like nightshades. Yeah. How can people decide what's reliable? So, I mean, I when I'm looking for information on a particular disease, I usually go to 
normally like the nonprofit that's associated with that condition. So like if it's for, for arthritis, I would go to the Arthritis Foundation. If it's diabetes, I would go to the Diabetes Association. Heart disease, I would go to the American Heart Association because they're going to publish, you know, studies that are that are peer-reviewed and, and scientific and not just somebody's blog about IBS. Yep. Um, yep. And I had to... I, I recently did a, um, a presentation for Miami students and the instructor said, now, you know, the, the students are really interested in private practice, so they're really interested in what you have to say. And I was like, okay, but I don't want to burst, my, burst their bubble with this. And I, and I said, you know, you may be an expert in your own medical condition. Like maybe you have IBS or maybe you've had a baby or maybe you have six kids and you feel like you're an expert in pediatric nutrition. You're an expert in your own medical condition, but that doesn't make you an expert in the condition itself. You need to have that experience working with those conditions in order to, mm-hmm. you know, to be considered an expert in it. So, um, I mean, I use my own rheumatoid as an example, but I don't necessarily, when I'm counseling patients, I don't necessarily tell them that I have mm-hmm. rheumatoid. I mean, I just try to keep sure. my own, I keep it as obviously as scientific as I can, because that's what we're here for. We want to give people mm-hmm. the science in mm-hmm. usable terms that they can put into food. That's how I see my job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really good point. I think it's hard because you can go down that internet, that Google rabbit hole. And I, and then in, I'm sure you've experienced this. I feel like if it's not radical, people don't have interest in it. Yeah. If it's not, you know, it's not exciting. It's not glamorous. It's not, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I think in some ways we use diets as punishment for ourselves. Yeah. And, I know, was just going to say that. <laughs> right, it's almost sort of a masochistic type of thing. And right, it makes, if it's not punitive, people don't want to do it. It's very strange. Right. <laughs> here, put some avocado in your burger and, you know, maybe cut back on the amount of cheese that you eat and, you know, get some exercise and get some extra sleep. That's not glamorous. It's not exciting. Right. Um, right. But it's what works. I mean, right. and it's what people can stick to long term. Yeah as well yeah with you you know if this is something that's too radical people can do it for 30 days and then they fall right back into their old patterns yeah right well and and i think the issue with when you mentioned going down the rabbit hole you're going to find plenty of these pop-up ads about fill in the blank you know lose 30 pounds in 30 days or you know (laughs) i i used to get that one five foods to avoid and there'd be a banana there right like (laughs) Why are we banana bashing? Like, right. what's wrong with the banana? I know. You know? <laughs> so, I, I... Come on, you know us dietitians. We can hide the fact that it's full of sugar. Yeah, right. How dare you eat a banana? No. Um, I mean, the thing with nutrition is it's like anything else. It needs to be, it needs to be individualized. And if people do think that a food is causing them inflammation then they need to really keep a detailed food diary and start start jotting things down and figuring out what is what is the thing, you know? Right. It, it before they be, cut everything out. Right. It might not be the cheese on the pizza. It might be the pepperoni that's right. causing, you right. know, pain. But people right. assume it's the cheese and then they cut out dairy and maybe they don't need to. Right. Um, 
Yeah. And there's, there's just so much stuff out there. I mean, I think about, you know, the autoimmune protocol stuff that I see that patients put themselves on and just think, Oh, I don't know how you can live like that. Even yeah. if it's for a good time, that's a, it's really hard to eat with your family. It's hard. And then you lose, you know, or you're stressing out about making sure your meals are right and adding that stress. Yeah. Which causes the inflammation, right? Right, right, exactly. And then you don't know which part of it is is real and what part of it is just anecdotal or placebo effect. Like, oh, I took this and now I feel better. Right. But is it the fact that you did that, or is it the fact that you that it really worked for you? It's hard to say. Even with like anti-inflammatory medicine, you know, I think about like the baby aspirin or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you do see reduced inflammation and reduced risk for heart disease, but it's not like we can just tell everybody, "Hey, take Advil every day; you're going to live forever." Because obviously, those medicines have gastrointestinal effects and renal effects and liver and everything else. So, while they may reduce inflammation in the short term, it's not something that we can rely on right. forever just to you know this be this panacea unless we get to the root cause of whatever's causing the inflammation yeah right. so well thank you so much yeah. this has been great information yeah. uh, i think it's just a good summary of of inflammation and i know it's something we're all very curious about so if you want to check out our show notes we will share some of the articles from PubMed that Lisa shared with us in preparing for today's podcast. We'll also post a link to her website and her uh, nutrition swag, which I need to order some. Because <laughs> 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 your shirt, Laura, they're super cute. So. Yes. I love the new masks that she's got, the, their, the COVID masks. Oh, yeah. thank you. This will include the links to some of the articles that Lisa sent us and to her website. We appreciate your show ideas. If you want to hear more about uh, the Mediterranean diet or whatever you're interested in hearing, uh, we would love your ideas. You can email us at dish at secretliferd.com. You can visit us on Instagram at the Secret Life Dietitians, and you can follow us on Twitter at at T Dietitians. And we will see you next time wherever you get your podcasts.